Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host. My name is Jean McCarthy. I've been living alcohol-free for over six years, and you can read all about what that has been like for me on my blog, Unpickled. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And today's guest was on the Bubble Hour back in 2014 on a two-part episode called Sober Firsts. Her name is Megan Peters, and she's a blogger and a photographer from Kansas City, whose sobriety is just one part of her multifaceted identity, like all of us, right? Crazy Bananas Mm. is equal parts, a gorgeous photography, lifestyle information like cool products, traveling, parenting tips, crafts, and a personal blog. That includes a section on recovery. So, Megan, welcome back to the Bubble Hour. Thank you so much. It's so fun to be back after a couple years. I know. It's neat. And I think it'll be interesting for our listeners and probably for yourself, too, to go back and listen to that old episode and and sort of, you know, see if they can connect the dots of what's changed for you. Because we all do. You know, we're all a work in progress. And I have had a lot of guests say that when they listen back to their old episodes, they can hear the difference in themselves over the years. So, yeah, I mean, I'm you had sure it together <laughs> Not oh, that yeah. you're not hot or anything. <laughs> I don't know about that. That was so, when I look back on that, that was so early in my sobriety journey. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I went on and talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, that's what recovery is all about, is telling our stories and learning from one another. So I'm glad that you did. But yeah. let's hear an update. Tell us a bit about yourself and about your recovery in your life. Sure. So like Jean said, my name is Megan Peters and I have been in recovery in the recovery world for about four and a half years. Um, And I'm a writer and photographer here from Kansas City. I actually just opened a brand new photography studio this morning. So it's been a very busy day around here. Um, (laughs) Thank you very much. It's a pretty exciting thing. Um, I'm also mom to two kids, two elementary school aged kids, which is different. Last time when we were talking about sober first, I still had a toddler. So it's a different world now. Um, I'm also the wife to a tech entrepreneur. So that is a job in itself as well. Um, And I mean, I was going to share a little bit about my drinking story and my recovery story. Um, Obviously, some of this was already shared on that other episode, so I'm going to keep it a little shorter. Um, But basically, you know, I had my first drink at 15 um, up until that time and past that time. I was a type A perfectionist. I did all the things. Um, If there was a thing, I did it. And I was getting an A plus in it. And I was, you know, the queen of it. That was kind of my life for a really long time. Um, And I remember having that first drink and feeling like it was the release of a pressure valve on my life. Um, I spent so much time tying myself into knots to just be perfect in everything I did. And I, like I said, I did all the things, so it was a lot. (laughs) Um, And so alcohol for me was like the first tool that I ever found because I was never given the tools to practice self-care, to take care of myself, to make sure that I wasn't taking on too much, to learn how to say no. I had no idea how to do any of those things. And so alcohol was that tool for me. Um, I would do all the things until I was just completely empty. And then I would use the alcohol to relieve and then go back and do all the things, which obviously isn't sustainable. Um, I was also, you know, very involved in activism and in social justice and all those things from a very young age. That was a huge part of my identity when I was drinking. Um, And it's been an interesting thing to kind of be back in that world a little bit again. Um, 
definitely my drinking escalated up to the point where, you know, instead of being a college student where we could say, oh, I'm just drinking like everybody else does, um, I was a full-time working mother of two. And on the outside, everything looked great. You know, I had a great job. My husband had just started his business. I was supporting our family while he started that up. We had these two beautiful children. But after I had my second child, my son, um, it really scared me how quickly I went back to drinking. Um, I didn't drink during my pregnancy, but very soon after. Whereas with my daughter, my kids are about four and a half years apart. So there was four and a half years of progression in my alcoholism between them as well. Um, you know, it took me a while to kind of start drinking again the way I had been pre-pregnancy. But with my son, with my second child, it was just so fast. Um, and it really scared me. And I was very unhappy <laughs> all the time. Um, I had never really experienced depression, um, but obviously alcohol is a depressant, so I was depressed <laughs> all the time. Um, but I, I put it on everything around me. It was all external, right? My job, I hate my job. My marriage is crap. My, I don't like being a mother, all of these things. Um, but then, you know, I slowly started to change those things. You know, I got a new job. Um, I worked on my marriage. It was so much better. Um, my kids were getting older, so it wasn't like I was in the toddler, you know, age stage anymore. And yet I was still so miserable, depressed. <laughs> and I noticed that, you know, the one thing that kept coming up and up over and over again was the drinking and the alcohol. Um, and I remember writing in my journal, I was doing a course on like how to find your path in life because I hated my job. And it was about finding the career that, you know, you're going to love. And I, it, you were supposed to do, there was a writing prompt. And I remember writing down, I'm concerned about the drinking. I think I drink too much. Um, and I wish I could say that that was my day one, but it wasn't. There was, there was a big journey between that day and the day that ended up being the first day of my sobriety, which was in April of 2013. That was the day that finally stuck for me. Um, and for me, you know, with recovery and sobriety, each year is so different, I'm finding. Um, I still feel like a baby in sobriety in the middle of my fifth year, right? Um, and it's funny because, you know, when I got a year, which was about the first time I was on the bubble hour, I thought, like, I'm amazing. I have a year of <laughs> sobriety. I have so much long-term recovery. Um, and now I look back and I'm like, oh, my gosh, you were a baby. Um, because just you learn everything builds on itself. And mm -hmm. so for me, almost every year has had a different theme. Um, and definitely the theme of this past year has been kind of looking back out at the world around me and what I can do in the world around me, whereas the other years were definitely more inwardly focused on working on myself and changing myself. And now this last year has definitely been more about using those things that I've learned to affect the community around me and the world around me. Now, you recently had quite an epiphany. You were telling me about recovery and just how it can impact our interaction with others when it comes to social issues or politics. And, you know, we're in a pretty hairy climate right now, I think, in North America where there's a lot of polarization. And we want to be careful not to alienate anyone because it really isn't about picking a side and taking a position. It's about your relationship with yourself and, and how you honor that. So tell me what you came to understand with regards to that. Yeah. So I actually pulled out this letter that I wrote. It wasn't really a letter. I would love to say I wrote this beautiful handwritten letter, but it was an Instagram instant message um, <laughs> that I sent to another friend in recovery um, who we were having this conversation, you know, she was posting some things about what was happening out in the world. And I was as well. And it was 
many months ago. And um, I kind of wrote this thing to her as I was thinking it out myself. And she ended up actually making it out into a meme and putting it out into her social media, into her world as well. And so I actually have that with me. And I would love to just read that because for me, it was like the, the, the best way I can describe kind of what it felt like. Um, mm-hmm. And so what it says is, um, I've just been thinking a lot about what it means to be a sober person in this scary world. It's terrifying, but we were made for this. When I got sober four years ago, I couldn't imagine handling conflict with grace, speaking up when it's unpopular, or being kind to those I disagree with. But as I moved through recovery, I learned. My tiny piece of the world split into a million pieces when I hit my own rock bottom, and I had to bring it all back together. I learned how to disagree. I learned how to love and how to speak out. I learned that fear is not the boss of me. I became open about my sobriety journey, and I found out I have nothing to fear. I don't know. I don't really believe that all things happen for a reason, but maybe sometimes they do. Maybe I had to go through all of that pain and suffering so that I could be the person I need to be in the world we're living in now. Maybe I had to get sober because the world needs sober Megan now more than ever. Maybe this is how we change everything. Mm, I love that. Yeah, that was, it was one of those things where I I kind of just wrote it all out, you know, on my phone with my thumbs. Um, And I've gone back to it quite a lot because that is really true to me. Um, You know, you you can turn on the news today and begin to feel very overwhelmed. Um, But I really do feel like, you know, as a society, kind of hitting rock bottom. You know, we've been collectively numbing as a society for a very long time, you know, with food and Facebook and alcohol and all the things. Um, And it's like, we're at that rock bottom stage right now, I feel like. But I feel like as people in recovery, we're uniquely positioned because we've been there. We know what that feels like. And we know there's something after that. We know you don't just stay at rock bottom forever. You have to go somewhere. Um, and so I have a lot of hope (laughs) and Mm -hmm. the people I know in recovery have a lot lot of hope as well. Um, and I think that's a really, uh, interesting gift that we can give to people that maybe haven't walked down this path of rock bottom and recovery themselves. Um, and it's a way we can kind of reach out to people, um, in our communities and kind of show what that looks like, show what it's like to disagree with someone. You know, I have, I'm, I've always been <laughs> very open <laughs> about how I feel about issues. Um, that's, that's nothing new in my life. Um, but I think it's really interesting that I do now know how to talk to people I disagree with and not necessarily force them to agree with me. Right. Yeah. That's, that's and I, I just want to pull this back a little bit because I'm sure there's some sure. people that are either long into a 12-step program or farther into their recovery that know exactly what you're talking about right now. But someone who's kind of new mm-hmm. to recovery and just getting sure. through the like, like, you know, for the first weeks, months, your primary focus is just on not needing to numb, not taking that drink. And they really like, sometimes that takes all of your energy. So they might be thinking, what the hell are you talking about, Megan? What is this? <laughs> what is this not needing other people to agree with you thing that you're talking about? At what point does that have to come into my recovery? Because I wouldn't have never connected those two things when I was early on. I mean, cause I sure. also like you was very driven by perfectionism and I would have had no idea what 
like what anything had to do with anything else. All I was worried about was not drinking at first. So help me not just connect the dots, but tell me what the dots are. How do those things relate? Sure. And I should also say if, if you are early in recovery, yes, absolutely. You need to be focused on yourself and your recovery. Um, like I kind of said earlier, it's only been even in the last year and I have four and a half years of sobriety that I've even considered looking out at some of these things. Um, those first few months and years are very much about rebuilding who you are so that you can be this person eventually that can, can do these things. Um, but it takes time and it takes a lot of um, just introspection and work. Um, but yeah, for me, you know, the dots are more, you know, when I, part of my issue with perfectionism was people pleasing, right? So I was the chameleon that I was going to be whoever you wanted me to be. Um, I like to walk into a room and read social cues of everybody in the room. What do they want me to be? What do they want me to be? Which is just exhausting, I have to say. Um, Mm -hmm. But I did it for a really long time. And I also hated conflict. And this was a way I could avoid ever having to deal with conflict, right? Like, so if I go to you and I'm exactly who you want to be, we're not going to have any conflict between us. Um, and I really had to learn, and that was part of why I drank, right? Because I would get in a situation where maybe I didn't agree with someone, but I didn't know what to say, or I went too far, or whatever. And then I would spend, you know, the next week reliving this conversation in my head, and oh, I should have done it differently, and beating myself <laughs> up about it. And that was how I numbed that was by drinking. Um, mm-hmm. And so I had to learn how to do that. <laughs> without alcohol. And a big part of that is, you know, also being able to forgive myself. A huge part of my recovery has been learning how to, when I say the wrong thing, ask for, for, you know, make amends, not necessarily ask for forgiveness, but make amends and then forgive myself. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes we say stupid stuff, (laughs) especially when we're heated or feeling, you know, really passionate about an issue. Um, But these days, I think that I also, because of just the vibe I put out into the universe as a person who's been in recovery for quite a while, um, people feel a little bit safer talking to me, maybe when they don't agree with me um, than before. I think before I probably was kind of scary. (laughs) Yeah, I think I I was too, because I worked really hard on convincing people. Like, I was... I was really motivated by being right and by being liked. Mm-hmm. So I was always on the charm offensive and, and it really bothered me if someone disagreed with me, um, like, like I would ruminate on it, which is, you know, part of depression too is ruminating on things. And so then I would get like overly obsessed with the fact that I, you know, I hadn't won them over to my side yeah. of the argument. And, um, when I got sober and I started looking what different programs, you know, what they suggested to get sober. So even though I didn't do a 12 step program, one of the 12 steps is, and I talk about this all the time. I think I talked about it last week. It's examining resentments and, Mm -hmm. and there's an expression, you know, stay on your own side of the street. And I remember those two ideas were really like, what, what is that? Why does that help? Why do you have to do that? Um, because I felt quite justified in my resentments because I was right. Like I worked really hard at being right. <laughs> so it was okay to be resentful of some dum dumb who was wrong. Um, but the idea of like, no, let it go. Have your opinion, stand by it, state it, but also listen to other people and get into that like dichotomy of, 
you both have a right to your opinion and no one has to be, no one has to win that argument. It doesn't even have to be an argument. You can just both stand in your space. And that was in order to do that, you have to learn to feel safe without winning or without being perfect because you have to give up the idea that you're going to be judged and you have to win, right? You have to get so learn to feel safe in yourself without some kind of check mark or star or agreement. And, and that does take a little bit of work. But the, the thing is, it's, that's the kind of mindset that's going to help you stay sober because that's a much easier zone to live in than needing to be right. As you said, it's exhausting to need to be right. Yes, and I think so much of this is really interesting because these weren't things that, you know, three years ago I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to want to be getting involved in activism again, so I need to learn how to do this. These were things that I had to learn how to do just to be like a human in the world that I didn't know how to do that came (laughs) with recovery that now benefit being a human in the world that we're living in right now where there is so much polarization and there is so much this side versus that side. Um, And that's not to say you have to necessarily agree with the other side either. It's just, yeah, like you said, just stand in your own space, eyes on your own paper, um, Mm -hmm. which was so hard for me. It was so hard. Mm -hmm. I was such a self-righteous person, um, Mm -hmm. which is just insufferable. I don't know how people dealt with me. It's actually really interesting because my husband and I, um, knew each other in high school. And so I was very insufferable at that time. Um, and I was always right. And I was, <laughs> and randomly we will get together with people from high school and they'll say something, they'll make a comment about something, whatever it is, social issue, just random stuff. And they'll look at me and they'll go, sorry, Megan, hold on. Or <laughs> because I used to just sit there seething with like, ready to talk. I wanted to state my case. And I think the big difference is now I do a lot more listening than talking. Um, You know, I have my moments where I definitely do some talking, but listening has been the biggest change in my life in general. And that applies to this, but it applies to just recovery in general, being able to sit and listen to people, to wait my turn, um, to not be waiting just to say something. Like, okay, I'm listening to you just so I can respond with what I think. Right. But I've arranged really my listen. face as if I'm um, and pleasantly like, listening like that. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm, I've got my smile on, but I'm actually lining up my, re- my response, right? No, actively listening. Yes, I'm, I'm formu- formulating my argument. Um, yes. And I don't, I don't really do that anymore. I mean, I, I'm not perfect. We all have our moments. But, um, but I think so much of it now is about also, you know, one of the things that I learned in recovery, it, just in general, when you're dealing with other humans out in this world, um, the other people's reactions have very little to do with you. Um, you know, if someone is, wants to have a conversation with me about something, whatever it may be, whether it is political or not, um, and they're upset or they're angry or whatever it may be, that's not about me. That's about their own triggers. That's about their own. Mm-hmm. Oh, shoot. Megan's call has just dropped because she's got kind of a rotten connection right now. I'm just going to try and bring her on on the phone. Let's see if this will work because we're having a The number you are calling is temporarily unavailable. Oh, well, that's not going to work. Let's see if she can get back to us here. Hmm. Okay, listeners. Let's try one more time. 
The number you are calling is temporarily. No. The number you are calling is temporarily
Megan, are you back? I'm back. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm glad you made it. I don't know what you just had to do to get back on the line, but I suspect it was invisibly a little bit, heroic. A little bit of fast driving, but we're here. <laughs> we're ready to go. I'm, this is all about like taking things as they are and moving along. <laughs> exactly. We just take things in stride. Okay, so exactly. welcome back, listeners. Yes. Um, we just had to take a quick break in our conversation due to <clears throat> the internet. Uh, maybe it was the eclipse. I don't know. Something, something in the universe yeah. came between us, but we overcame. the eclipse. okay so just to back up so what we were talking about was just sort of that idea of how staying on our own side of the street was sort of you know a pivotal discovery and and um and how it affects how we see the bigger picture not only you know with regards to our own recovery but with regards to the bigger picture in life so I guess one thing I wanted to ask you then was just how that impacted your actions in general yeah I think it really changed the way I approached things I think in the past uh, when things in the world upset me I like to rail against them very publicly um, to shame people possibly even Um, and just to, to not necessarily, um, look at what I was doing, but instead of look, I would focus on all the negative out there, right out in the world, um, instead of looking at myself. And now, you know, when I see something that is upsetting or affecting to me out wherever it may be, um, my first thought is, okay, what can I do? Like, what can I do in this moment? And it's that one day at a time, next right thing, thing, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be like that you're going to solve this problem today. (laughs) That's that's a huge part of recovery, right? We think like, okay, we're going to get sober and everything's going to be great. And then if you have any bit of sober time built up, you realize that that's not exactly how it works, (laughs) unfortunately. Um, That's just the first step of many, many, many more. Um, And so I think now when there's something like that, where I feel like I need to do something, I do know that just identifying one thing that I can do today um, and focus on what I can do, not on what everyone else is doing, not on, on negative and positive sides, right? Just focus on myself. And I think that just allows us to make those tiny steps. And before you know it, you look back and if you've taken that step every day, whatever it is, whatever issue it is. Um, there can be big changes that come from that. Right. And I think, you know, what, what you're talking about isn't necessarily like just turn in like there. Yes. When we change ourselves, we change our experience in the world. That's important. But I also know that you're not saying like, don't take a stand or don't talk about things or, I mean, we do need people to sort of take a stand on what they believe in, but it also means that you can stand your ground without being confrontational or without, um, tearing other people down. You can just sort of like shine your light, right? Without Right. One yeah. of the things I think is really interesting just in the fact that, so I'm, I'm very public about my recovery now. I don't think that everyone needs to be public about recovery or sobriety. I think it's to each their own, their own journey. But in, in the way that I've kind of approached handling public issues, um, social justice issues, activist issues, 
is that, you know, when I talk about my sobriety or my recovery online, I don't get online and berate anyone who drinks, right? Like I get online and I talk about, like if I'm getting on Facebook or even if I'm having a one-to-one conversation with someone, I talk about my experiences and I share how I feel and how I've changed and whatever that is, right? I always get a positive response when I speak my truth in that way. Um, Mm -hmm. when it comes to recovery. And I found the same thing, honestly, with any of these other issues, you know, I may, I, I live in a place where um, I'm probably in the minority (laughs) in terms of my political beliefs or social justice beliefs. Um, So a lot of people around me don't necessarily agree with how I feel about things. However, if I'm coming at these issues from a place of this is me, this is why I feel this way, and here's what I've done. Here is a charity I've worked with. Here is, you know, an advocacy event that I went to. I'm always surprised at how many people, even on either side of an argument, will be like, that's really cool. I didn't know that existed in our community. I would love to come with you sometime. And you don't know that if you're out there just upset and angry and pointing out everybody else's um, issues instead of just focusing on what you can do. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do we then, like, some of the things that are happening today as people are trying to sort of stand their ground and, and make a difference in the area that they believe in, that can, that can result in confrontation that maybe they weren't expecting or didn't invite. How do you recommend that, um, that we can sort of be true to ourselves in those moments and still take care of ourselves? Because, you know, I really think we're – we're sort of tiptoeing around politics and it's a time where we can't help it. I mean, I'm in Canada and we're, we're talking about American politics and, right. and the opinions here are very diverse and, and strong. And, um, and so I find sometimes that, you know, I, uh, where, as it relates to me as a person in recovery, I think what we're talking about is how we apply these lessons of recovery to politics, but it's hard to do that without like, sometimes you just get pushed into the deep end, you know? And so how do we do that? How do we, like, do you think there's a line between looking after yourself and being true to yourself or how do you balance that? So I just, I know kind of what my line is. I think it's probably different for everybody. You know, one thing that I talk about a lot is um, that I consider myself an introvert. So just as an introverted person in general, me having to speak about anything to anyone is exhausting, (laughs) Um, regardless of whether it's political or controversial or just small talk. Um, That I can do it. I'm good at it. But that doesn't mean uh, that it doesn't totally wear me out. So I think it's really important um, if you decide that, okay, I want to get involved in something and an issue, whatever it is, um, to put a focus on self-care, even as you're doing that. Um, And actually, that's a really interesting thing that I've seen come to light in the activist community, like apart from recovery in these activist communities that I'm a part of, all of a sudden, all these conversations are happening around self-care. And um, and to them, it's like a foreign (laughs) concept, right? Because a lot of the people that would end up being really big in these kind of whatever movements are people that are probably, you know, the type A, the doing all the things, all of that. And so, you know, for me, having that background of like, I have four and a half years of recovery, self-care, taking care of myself, knowing that if I don't put the oxygen mask on myself first, I can't help anyone. So, um, so I definitely put a focus on that. 
Um, and you know, when it comes to talking to other people, like I said before, I, I try to really remember that my, their reactions are not about me, their reactions are about their own issues and their own triggers. And maybe something I said could trigger something in someone, but that doesn't mean it's my fault. And then vice versa, right? If someone says something to me and it triggers me and I get really angry or whatever it is, um, I do try to take a step back and think of, okay, why do I feel this way? Like what is happening in my body right now? Um, Mm -hmm. Is my heart beating faster? Do I feel hot? Like what is happening? And honestly, if I'm feeling very triggered to the point where I'm feeling um, unsafe isn't a great word, but that's the only word I can honestly think of right now. Um, to where I, I feel like I'm putting myself in a position where I'm going to say or do something or it's going to cause some kind of issue that I'm going to regret, I walk away. No questions asked. I will walk away. And oftentimes I was laughing because I was thinking about um, the the Sober First podcast we did so many years ago. And, you know, back then I was still in the place that I think a lot of us are in and a lot of people stay in and that's fine where maybe we're not comfortable saying why we don't drink or if we don't drink. So we think of all these things that we can say at like a party, like, Oh, I, yeah. I'm not Someone feeling well fill in. <laughs> or I have to drive or whatever. And, and, and I used to do all of those. I don't, I don't now. And that's a personal choice. I think everybody has to do what works for them, but I actually employ those same tactics when it comes to getting into conversations like this, mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. all of a sudden, Oh, the babysitter is calling my phone. Hold on one second. I'm going to go over here. Um, right. Because you just like, walk away and protect yourself. You don't have to join every argument you're invited to, right? You can yeah. you can let those invitations drop. That's okay. And it it's actually good practice in a way to sort of be like, Oh, okay, well, I'm gonna leave you with that. Like and not in a passive aggressive way of no. like I'm not talking to you, but but just okay, you know what? Mm, this might be something I can choose to just let it go. And uh, you know, I keep thinking of the quintessential family dinner, like the the like Jack Nicholson and um, <laughs> Diane Keaton movie. You know, kind of like just I, I don't know. I'm just casting it in my head, like you know the sure. the softly lit family dinner table that's like the prime scene for um, some kind of political disharmony between generations or something. And and first of all, in in early sobriety or in shaky times period during recovery, going to a multi-generational family event can be really awkward just because we sort of automatically go back into those family roles. So even though I am a, a, you know, 50 year old woman and I have, you know, uh, lots of life experience under my belt, put me in a room with my mom and my sisters and my cousins and I'm the youngest little sister again and I fall right back into that role of like you guys need to listen to me and you know stamping my feet a little bit and and like I I, it just kind of comes over us and then sometimes we just flip it back into old patterns and we feel unexpectedly rebellious or misunderstood and so what kind of tools would you suggest people like how do we get through those Time because a lot of people like they either end up drinking at those events, either during them because like they just say F it, you know, give me a drink, mm-hmm. I need to get through this, or they might get through that event but go home and drink alone to numb the, the discomfort afterwards. It can really sideswipe people because your own family are kind of the last people you think should throw you under the bus, but. I don't know. Any tips for getting through that when it's more of a personal situation? Um, Well, one thing I always try to remember, and I remember this 
a lot with my little children, but I apply it to myself with my family as well as a child still. Um, you know, we tend to treat the worst, the people that love us the most because we know they're safe. You know, mm-hmm. I used to use that a lot when my son was a toddler, that he would always get like the best, like he'd get like most helpful at preschool and he'd win all these awards for being such an easygoing kid. And then he came home and he was certainly not that kid. And I would be like, what the heck is going on? And I remember going to his pediatrician and the pediatrician saying, you know, because at, at the time he was in kind of a bigger class, it was kind of chaotic. They were like, you know, kids like him tend to hold it together when they're in that environment. And then they come home where they know it's safe for them to lose it. And they do. And that just means that he knows you're a safe space, you're a safe person. And I try to remember that when I'm interacting with adults that I love too. You know, if someone says something to you that maybe they wouldn't say to a coworker or whatever, it's because they know you're a safe space. That, that, that doesn't mean it's okay if someone's saying something mean or cruel or offensive or whatever. Um, I think it's totally okay to say something about that. But I think it's also okay that we, we protect ourselves, if, especially if we're early in sobriety. Because like I said, this is only happening to me now because I have, you know, a couple years of sobriety behind it because I've taken that time to build that toolbox to where I could have that conversation. You know, my first holiday, which I talked about on that sober first episode, actually, because it was right after it, was the 4th of July with my family. And right. that first holiday, there is no way I would have talked about anything controversial. Um because I needed to keep myself safe. And then the other thing that I always tend to forget about, um, it's still even now will hit me like a ton of bricks, is the emotional hangover afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. You make it through the entire event, you're so proud of yourself, and then you get home and you're, you just fall apart. Um, And that is a really risky time for me, because I can tend in the moment to hold it together. It's, It's when all of a sudden all that noise is gone. And I don't realize how much I've just expended. Um, and so I, if, if there is something coming up like that, I always try to give myself a little buffer room afterwards to treat myself, however that may be. If it's, you know, if it is actually scheduling things, so I'm busy and not alone, fine. Um, sometimes it's something simple like a self-care, like going to a yoga class, going to get my nails done, whatever. Just something so I'm not wallowing in the like, oh my God, that was so exhausting of it all. Right. And not to re- keep replaying it. I mean, my one of my worst mm-hmm. habits, and I'm learning to undo it, but I still like I catch myself doing it. And that is continuing the conversation in my head. So I might have walked away from that invitation to argue. But then I keep it going in my head. And I have this, you know, I keep thinking of all the things I wish I said, or I could have said, or I could, you know, and I have to, okay. I have to like force myself to think, release it with gratitude or just release it or remind myself, no, Jean, you let that go. Just let it go. And that's not easy to do because those are deeply ingrained old habits. So just, you know, just a reminder to listeners that it might feel really weird and awkward to let that go. But if you catch yourself doing it, it, it's not helping you. It's not serving you. So just try and let it go. Right. And you don't know, you know, you don't know if what you said was exactly what that person needed here in that moment, even if it didn't end well, you have no idea what, you know, happened before they came to that conversation, maybe what happens after that conversation and just to let it go as it is what it was supposed to be. And, and hopefully it will bring about something positive in the future um, is so important. And then, you know, I'm a, I'm a person who really believes in, um, 
I used to be very codependent. And so there are a couple of phrases that I've learned along the way that, um, again, were, were supposedly going to be used in other circumstances, but I found myself using them a lot this past year, which is the phrase, I believe you believe that. It's a great conversation ender. You're not agreeing. Mm-hmm. You're not disagreeing. I believe you believe that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then also, I'm sorry you feel that way. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry you feel that way. And, and just, it, it, it's, it's always really interesting when I use either of those two phrases because it always catches people off guard because I used to be such a fighter. They right. like, oh, oh, you're not going to, no, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way. Right. Okay. Or thank you, thank you for sharing your perspective with me. I hadn't thought of it. Um, sure. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't mean you agree with them. It means you hurt them. And that's a very gracious exit too. Like, okay, well, thank, thank you for sharing that. Um, mm-hmm. That's a conversation ender, but it's also um, – and like I said, not in a passive way, like, thank you for sharing. <laughs> it's all in the emphasis. <laughs> Be sincere. Okay. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you for telling me your perspective. I appreciate hearing it from you. Um, or, you know, I appreciate your willingness to hear each other's sides. Those are, yeah, those are great sort of gracious exits from the conversation that still you can stand your ground and, and step out of it. I also have to tell you, I, someone said something to me um, a few months ago that I thought was really brave and really just outside of my expectation at all. And we were kind of relatively new acquaintances and we were having a conversation and um, she had kind of gone into a subject that I didn't really know what to do with. And so I very clearly kind of avoided it. And later she said, came up to me and she said, Jean, um, my desire is to be close to you. And uh, so it's important to me that we have open dialogue. And she said it very much like this. Like it was clearly wow. kind of a scripted thing she'd learned, but it was okay because what she said was, so my desire is to be close to you. And I feel like um, something went wrong in our last conversation. And I'm afraid I might've offended you when I said X, Y, Z. And uh, if that's the case, I wish to apologize. And, you know, she really hadn't offended me. I just had sort of sidestepped the conversation. Um, but I guess I really appreciated and respected her for for the courage that it took to sort of bring that up in that way. And I was quick to say, oh, you didn't offend me, but you're right. I didn't want to talk about that. And um, uh, But I don't have any hard feelings about it. And I'm, I'm really grateful to hear that my response matters to you. Like it was really, it, it was a very bonding thing and a nice repair to what had sort of been an awkward conversation, even though we had both really been enjoying each other. So I don't know if I would ever have the courage to say that, but I remember that moment so clearly because her courage to say that was really surprising to me. And it also um, didn't, she didn't have to take anything back except that she, she apologized for making it awkward rather than for, you know, her perspective versus mine. So I thought that was pretty impressive as well. That's so wonderful. And that really goes along. You know, there's another thing that I I learned in the past year about asking clarifying questions. So it really goes along with that. It, It works a little better in the moment, but it's very similar where if someone says something to me, um, that I'm like, what now? What was that? <laughs> um, <laughs> whoa, whoa. Being able to say back, okay, what I heard was this. Is that what you meant? If not, I apologize. I didn't understand. Could you explain it? 
Um, Mm -hmm. instead of just like, wow, you know, you said something so offensive or you said something so mean, um, or I don't agree with you, um, being able to do that a little bit, especially with people we love, our family, um, people that we want in our lives, regardless of how they feel about things. Um, I think it's so good. I wish I could do that, Megan, but I have to tell you in all honesty, I'm, I have not broken the good girl mold, good girl mold of just smiling and nodding. Even when I disagree, I don't. And then being mad at myself later for not saying something. Um, But if we, like, I think there's even a way to forgive yourself for that. Right. Yeah. Of knowing that, you know, just, um, we do, there are times where we do speak up, but you can even just say like, Ooh, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with you, but <laughs> right. oh, this is making me uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable right now. Which um, is fine. That's, that's and that's, I say that, that's like best case scenario. I wouldn't say that I say that all the time <laughs> at all. I've just been told to try to say that by a very good therapist. So I'm working <laughs> on it. Um, thought I would share. But yeah, no. I Next think time that, you do it, I want you to text me. I want you to I be will. like... I did, I did it. it. FYI. <laughs> oh, that's but so funny. Yeah, it's so important to forgive ourselves when we move on from that conversation. We're all doing the best we can. Yeah. And, and that's, you're doing the best we can with the information that we have at the moment. And that's what our brain is telling us. And maybe next time when we know better, we can try to do better. But, um, but yeah, rehashing it over and over doesn't help anyone. And all it does is hurt ourselves. So um, tell me, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? We're just kind of rounding out time that we have left. Um, any sort of final thoughts or anything we didn't get to that you wanted to make sure we hit on in our conversation? I, mean, I think the biggest thing is just that, you know, like we've talked about, if you're early in sobriety um, and you're just trying to get through every day, that is the most important thing. Um I think it is okay to take a break from all of it. I know a lot of people, I've I've actually had very calm disagreements with people over this, but I think it's okay to turn off the news, to turn off the social media, to take breaks. I think it's really important to stay informed. We're living in a really strange time where things are happening very quickly, um, but that can so quickly lead to overkill. Um, And I know for me, the more media I'm taking in, the less healthy I am. Um, and it tends to feed off itself, right? Like if I see mm-hmm. one thing in my Twitter feed, then I want to see all the things in my Twitter feed. And then three hours have passed and I don't know what I've been doing um, because I've been laying in my bed looking through my Twitter feed. And, mm-hmm. and, and so for me, you know, I take breaks from all of it. Um, I find a couple news sources that I trust. I try to keep them varied so that I have different perspectives. I try not to get as much of my news from social media as I can. Um, And I think that, you know, if you're in a place where you're feeling like I want to do something, pick one or two things, causes, whatever it may be, an issue. You know, like I said earlier, I want to do all the things, right? So every time something happens in the news, I'm like, I want to help with that thing. (laughs) But there's only one of me. And there's a lot of people in the world that probably want to help with that thing. Let's, Let's maybe let someone else step up. And Mm -hmm. pick your one or two things, you know, for me, I actually have three, I have three, which is too much, honestly, um, major causes that I, I want to put my heart and soul into. And I, I focus on that, even though there's 20 other things I wish I could. Um, and you know, make one phone call, you know, go to one meeting, whatever. You don't have to do all the things. Um, and I think eventually you can kind of find your niche where your unique talent 
will help you. But I think, as always, the most important thing is to protect your own sobriety because you can't do anything without that. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to remember, I think just people, most of the people that I've met in recovery are just very empathetic people, right? Like probably the reason they numbed was because the world was very loud for them, at least a lot of the ones I've met. So to remember that these things may be hitting us a little bit harder emotionally and to take care of ourselves um, emotionally, spiritually, physically, doing all those things because it, it may be a little bit harder. I know it is. I feel like it is for me. You know, I feel like I see something and I'm immediately in tears. Um, whereas like other people I know that just function a little bit differently are like, oh, yeah, that stinks. But like, move on with your life. <laughs> and I have a harder time with that. Um, and so just remembering that when I'm taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love the expression, too, that the way we do anything is the way we do everything. And mm. so I really think, too, that the things we can we believe in can be demonstrated in the small scale on our life. So it's, you know, it's holding doors for one another and looking each other in the eye and um, correcting someone when they use disrespectful language to, you know, a person of color or a religious group or anything that, you know, just, just to sort of gently throughout our day, like just to walk the walk in all things we do. And it, I think it builds us, makes us braver to do bigger things when we, also hold up the truth that we believe in in the small things that we do so absolutely I love there's that. a lot of ways to walk the walk Megan I want to thank you so much for um, being on the bubble hour today and Megan's blog is crazybananas.com and um, uh, the, I, I was looking at your website today gosh it's beautiful and it's uh, you've got you. all the different sections on it so I encourage our listeners to to visit it and to to look at all the things that you're into and to look at just how stinking cute you are. I got to meet <laughs> Megan. <laughs> we finally met in uh, New York this spring at the She Recovers event after being connected through the web for a number of years. And remember we sat together during the Ann Dowsett Johnson writing workshop. And I just like sitting beside you was as exciting to me as listening to Ann speak because I was just like, I can't, like, I wanted to pinch you and pinch me and just be like, we're both here. We're and here. It so this comfortable. Is yeah. I just, I just felt like, you know, we just felt like a sister or a cousin or it just, it just felt like so close. And, um, so you're just a really lovely soul and I'm, I'm happy to talk to you and I, I hope that we get to see each other again too. Yes, me too. And the feelings are definitely mutual. And, oh, and your previous interview, um, our listeners can hear that when they're done this one. They can go on to blogtalkradio.com slash bubble hour and search Sober First, and you will hear a two-part um, interview with Megan and a couple of other guests. And listeners, if you have anything you'd like me to get to Megan, you can write to me at the bubble hour at gmail.com and uh, and I'll make sure that Megan gets it so Megan and listeners thank you so much for today and for all of you until next time take good care I own it I didn't not proud that that was me and